John 13 today. John 12 was the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And as we go through John, we're kind of, we're kind of hitting some highlights that I think are important for our church body. So John 12 was Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. He's come in now, and, and there's this transition from chapter 12 to 13 in the Gospel of John. You see, John chapter 1 through 12 is what's called the Book of Signs. That's what the theologians call it. In that, Jesus gave seven signs. And why? So that you may believe, John 20. That's why he did it. It was his public ministry. And during that, he created quite the problem with the religious leadership because they want him dead. And his final miracle, the crescendo of his signs, was he raised Lazarus from the dead. And in chapter 12, we learn, because now Jesus' popularity is going through the roof, they want to kill him and kill Lazarus. Because Lazarus is one of the reasons people are starting to turn to Jesus. So chapter 12 ends that way. But chapter 13 opens with what's called the book of glory. That's what theologians call it. Because now Jesus says, I'm going to be glorified. And by being glorified, he means the cross. Obviously, the resurrection and the ascension are the full glory of the Son of God. But the cross is the entrance into that glory as Jesus talks about that. I'm going to be glorified, he tells his disciples, meaning he's going to die. This is called the book of glory. This is now Jesus' private ministry. He's done speaking to the public. In John 13 through John 17 really takes place in one, maybe two nights as Jesus teaches his disciples. And then his arrest, trial, and cross. So the road to glory is the cross. So John 13 is the first chapter that deals with Jesus' private teachings to his disciples. And I've, I've titled this Love. Love equals a servant's heart. Is that how I said it? Yes. Love equals a servant's heart. This is the foot washing chapter. And so we're going to talk about what Jesus did for his disciples. But it's interesting the chapter opens up with love and closes with love. So let me show you that. Jesus gives a new commandment that is really an old commandment. Look at John chapter 13, verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, which is when he instituted the Lord's Supper, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, meaning he was going to be crucified, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So it opens the chapter with a declaration of Jesus' love for his disciples. And says he loved them to the end, which could refer to up to the moment of his crucifixion, he loved them. Or some translations say he loved them to the uttermost. That he loved them as much as you could possibly love somebody. Both are true. He loved them up to the moment of his death, and he loved them to the utmost. So... That sets a tone. What I want to do now is drop down to verse 31 through 35, where he talks about this love again, and he predicts his death. So in the midst of this prediction of death and his glory, he reminds them of his love for them and then commissions them with a new commandment, that you love one another. So let's jump there, then we'll fill in between. And when he had gone out, referring to Judas, okay, because we'll, we'll talk about Judas. When Judas had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while, and I am with you. You will seek me, 
And just as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you also, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. How? Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. We'll see in a minute the, the power of this statement, because in, the, in between this opening statement, he loved his disciples to the end, and I want you to love each other just as I've loved you, was the foot washing. So Jesus' love for us illustrated the foot washing, but carried out in the cross is how we are to love one another. And it says here, verse 20, 35, by this, your love for one another, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This, is, this should be one of those passages that, that stop us in our tracks. And we ask the question, does my love for you and your love for me, is that evident to people watching us? To where they say, they know Jesus. Back when I became a Christian in the late 70s, there was a popular song. I'm going to sing again. <laughs> they will know we are Christians by our love. How many remember that song? So those of you that are of similar age as me. They will know we are Christians by our love, by our love. They will know we are Christians by our love. Now, I'm sure I sang it wrong. And I love singing that song. Now it's 40-something years later for me. I'm not sure I personally have fulfilled that. Because what's what at the heart of that? And I'm not trying to be, oh, poor, pathetic Tony and poor, pathetic Christians. But what's at the heart of loving you is selflessness on my part. I have to think of you before me. And that's what Jesus is going to teach us here. And when we do that for each other, as we grow in that, then there's a, a power as we love and serve each other that the world says there's something different about that people, those people at 300 Country Club Drive. So let's do this. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. He's not saying, all people, you know, all people will know you're my disciples if you dress right for church. You know how many times I've been told being a pastor for 28 years, I should wear a suit. Pastors should wear suits. I'm so glad no one in this church has ever told me that. <laughs> all people will know you're my disciples if you vote for the right political party. All people will know you're my disciples if you have the right size of cross around your neck. No offense, people, about crosses. It is a kind of interesting phenomenon that we take a torture instrument and put it around our neck as jewelry. All people, you know, my, know you're my disciples if you are loud, loud about how much you love Jesus and you condemn other people who don't. I remember in San Francisco 20 years ago on a street corner, and there was this guy with a Bible standing literally on a soapbox yelling at everyone at the corner. There was about 20 of us trying to cross the street at a stoplight. And he was just yelling at us to repent. He's still there. He was utterly ignored. 
by everybody. How are people going to know we follow Jesus? Because we love one another. Let's look at how Jesus loved us. First, I actually want to jump into 1 John to, to, to firm this up. The book of 1 John reiterates the themes of, of the Gospel of John. Chapter 2, verse 7. John is writing this in light of what Jesus taught. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing you, which is true in him, in Jesus, and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. That darkness and light is a big theme in John and 1 John. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. Whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness had blinded his eyes. So 1 John is one of those books that minces no words is just direct, you read it and you go, oh gosh, I have such a long way to grow. Is there an issue in your heart with a brother or sister in Christ? Where you say, I don't like that person, I hate that person, I want nothing to do with that person. And John is saying, if that's true, you're walking in the darkness. To walk in the light is to love your brother. The old cliche, love is a verb. Love is an action word. Those are cliches. It's not just a feeling or an emotion. Our actions will prove if we love someone. You know, you can say, I love you. We say it all the time. But my daughter, who's now 26, when she was a teenager, she'd be on the phone talking to her friends. Oh, I love you. I'm going. And then a week later, can't stand the person she was talking to. And that's teenagers. You know, that's, you know. Um, but... Do we understand what the words I love you mean? That it's easy to say. But another cliche, actions speak louder than words. So let's look at Jesus' actions. Proof of Jesus' love. One of the proofs of Jesus' love is he's the greater serves the lesser. So let's walk through this story in John chapter 13 about Jesus washing feet. I read to you verse 1. We'll start there again. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world and to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it in his heart of Judas... During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot... I, I'm, I'm very excited about today's message, and I'm skipping words, so interpret me. Into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son. So you see, Judas has already made a plan. He's already gone to the leaders and got his 30 shekels of gold. So Satan has put this into his heart. He did this to betray him. Verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. So let's stop there for a moment. The idea of foot washing in the Greco-Roman culture was very common. 
So, so, so it's not something we do much today. I mean, how, honestly, how many of you have had your feet washed by another person? How many of those were spouses? Keep your hand, put your hands down if it was your spouse. How many have had your feet washed by someone that wasn't your spouse? How many of you have washed someone else's feet? So a credible minority here. It's not something we do much of today. Should we? We're going to ask that question today. Should we? I want to show you the, the cultural reality of Jesus' day. Look at this picture of you wore sandals in a place that had no pavement. And your feet were filthy. Then you go into somebody's home. And what was common when you went into somebody's home was they would, they would have their servant wash your feet. They wouldn't do it themselves necessarily. They would have your servant do it. And during this time in the Jewish culture, the servants would be the Gentile servants. Even the Jewish who had Jewish servants would not, a Jewish person had a Jewish servant would not have the Jewish servant wash feet. It was so demeaning to a Jewish person to wash feet, Gentiles will do it. So, so understand what's going on here, that this is, um, this is a cultural thing of walking in dirt, your feet filthy, and Jesus with his disciples, and there's no servants to do it. So what does Jesus do? He takes the role of a servant and starts to wash the disciples' feet. Now, if you've ever been to parts of the third world, in 2006, uh, a bunch of us went to India on a mission trip. And we went, we went to a pastor's conference, was part of the trip. About 400 pastors came in from the jungles, and they all wore flip-flops, all of them. And when they walk into the church, none of them had shoes, all flip-flops. Walk into the church, you take your shoes off. So they would kick their flip-flops off. Imagine 400 pairs of flip-flops in a pile. And, and part of this pastor's conference was um, a foot washing. And it made total sense in that culture. Because they walked in from the jungles. So sometimes for days they walked to come to this pastor's conference. And the, the leader of this conference, his name was Moses, uh, an Indian gentleman, um, did a foot washing. And to where these Indian pastors washed each other's feet. And their feet were filthy. Their feet were covered in scars and cuts, calloused. And they would wash each other's feet. And then they would take both feet and pull them up and kiss them as an expression of their love for one another. And to me, it was one of the most memorable things I've ever seen and participated in, is they washed my feet and kissed my feet, and I, I did the same. It had great significance for me, but it made sense in their world. In our world, if you come into my house, I say, take your shoes and socks up, I wanna wash your feet. What are you gonna do? <laughs> now in Tahoe, we take our shoes off, don't we? But if I take it a step further and say, Take the socks off. I got some water over here. As a general rule, you're going to go, you know, let's, this is not a very good idea. Let's not do this. Because it's kind of strange to us. It's not our culture. It was their culture, but for a servant to do it. Jesus knows who he is. In verse 3, look at verse 3 again. This is what he says. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come down from God and was going back to God. Jesus knows who he is. He is secure in doing the work of a servant. 
When Jesus takes off his outer clothing and wraps a towel around himself, he is adopting the posture of a slave. The Lord is submitting himself to the menial tasks of a slave because of his love for his disciples. Verse 6. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? So Peter is incensed, not because he's offended by having his feet washed by Jesus, but I think Jesus, Peter's probably um, embarrassed for Jesus. You're the Lord. Why would you do this? Stop. Lords don't do this. Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Peter always goes like this, like a fish, you know. Jesus said to them, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you, not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. So that the depths of this passage, um, as I studied this week, I realized there's some depth here I haven't even fully understood yet. So Jesus is doing something that's beyond the tradition of cleaning someone's feet before they enter a house. Now, that's the primary point. But he's taking this and, and, and showing a deep meaning about, he says, if I do not wash your feet, He's not simply saying your feet need to be washed by somebody. If I do not wash you, it's more than a a question of cleansing. It's who does the cleansing. Remember, Jesus is heading to the cross. And there's something here where this foot washing and this cleansing represents what the cross will do in their lives. At the same time, though, he says you're not entirely dirty. By relationship with me, you're already clean need to be washed every once in a while. So there's this idea of love and serving one another. This this idea of of Jesus is the one who cleanses us through the cross. And there's this idea that foot washing in this example represents a forgiveness. You're already restored to me, Peter. But everyone needs forgiveness on a regular basis. So, So there's all sorts of nuances here. And Jesus is the only one. I must do this. Peter lacks something that only Jesus can supply. Verse 12. And when he had washed their feet and put put his outer garments back on and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord. And actually, in the Greek, it's what's called the definite article, the word the. And this could be translated, you call me the teacher and the Lord. Meaning, there's not several and I'm one of them. I am the teacher and the Lord. And you are right, for so I am. If I then, your teacher and Lord, or your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I have given you an example. This is the amazing thing about leadership. I just don't want to turn this sermon into a leadership sermon. But, and I always say this very, and huge simply, this is really simplifying leadership. 
So two kinds of, of, of leaders or two kinds of, of authorities in your life. There's the one that leads you and the one that commands you. A leader you follow, a commander you obey. You hear the difference? And, and there's times in culture, the military, we need commanders. There, you know, it's not a democracy in the military. You do what you're told. But in the church, starting with Jesus, you lead by example. And then you follow those people willingly. And Jesus is asking them to do something for one another that he was willing to do himself. Humble himself, become a slave. Interesting, Paul, possibly picking up on this in Philippians chapter 2, said that Jesus, although he was in the form of God, emptied himself and became a servant. Same word, slave, and went to the cross. So if our Lord will humble himself down to the level of a servant and serve us, and he says, it's an example I gave you, now do the same for one another. How are we to serve one another? Is this simply about serving or is it about giving up our lives? Jesus gave up his life. John 15, Jesus says this, no greater love than this, that someone gives up his life for a friend. So that's what we're called to do. At the end, I wanna bring some application out of that, but just let that sit there for a moment. If our Lord did this, humbled himself, took on the form of a slave in this evening, washed their feet. Even Peter's in sense, why would you do that? You guys do likewise. Second proof of Jesus' love. He washed the feet of both the betrayer and the denier. Who's the betrayer? Who's the denier? Jesus knows exactly what's going to happen here. But he washes Judas's feet, who's already received 30 shekels of gold to betray his master. And he washes the feet of Peter after a little argument, who we're going to see in a moment. Jesus tells him, you're going to deny me tonight, Peter. You say you'll die for me, but tonight you will, you will deny me. Let's keep reading. Let's look at Judas the betrayer, verse 13. I'm not speaking of all of you. That's it. I'm, I'm jumped ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, yeah, 18. That's right. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Quoting the psalm there where David said those words, where David, someone very close to David betrayed David. And often David's psalms are quoted by the New Testament writers and Jesus himself to be fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus is the son of David, the greater son of David. So what happened to David happens to Jesus. It's a beautiful, a beautiful um, theme that runs through scripture that's worth studying. But here there's a passage quoted. He who, who I gave my bread to lifted up his heel against me. And that, that's a metaphor for betrayal. So Judas turned his back on Jesus. We're told by Jesus to love our enemies. We're told by Paul to do good to those who hate us. What do you think about betrayal? We'll read more in a moment. The pain of betrayal. Um, it's, it's, it's in our world every day, different levels. But Michael Card wrote a, a song 
about this very event. And he said, only a friend can betray a friend. A stranger has nothing to gain. So when a stranger does something against you, you don't call it betrayal, do you? You just call it some jerk. But when someone close in you, your family member, a spouse, a child, your best friend, does something to you that is contrary to what any friend should do, what does that do to your heart? There's not much greater pain. So someone very close to Jesus, he spent three years with Judas, is going to betray him. Start at verse 21. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of the disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. And that, that's a, 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 literally at Jesus' bosom. So it was really, he was right next to Jesus, even leaning on Jesus' chest. So let me give you a picture here. You guys know Da Vinci's The Last Supper? Cool. So they're all on one side of the table, so the photographer can take a picture. They're in chairs. Um, it's clearly a, a renaissance culture. Jesus was, was, called, was called triclinium. I had to look at the word, Latin word, triclinium. There was low tables with three sides. And they reclined around these tables. Jesus would have been at that middle point. On his right was a place of honor. And that's where the Apostle John was. We're going to see in a minute, most likely, on his left was Judas. Another place of honor. And I'll, I'll explain that in a moment. So low tables, no chairs. And you leaned, you laid down, you leaned on your left arm, you ate with your right. And this is also what happened when Mary washed Jesus' feet. It said he came up behind her and washed it because Jesus was laying down eating supper and Mary came into the room and went to his feet when he was laying down. So that, that's the image of eating here. This, is, this, this shows a relaxed atmosphere for a meal. Let's keep reading. I forget where I left off. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus, of whom was he speaking? Since John is right next to him, Simon Peter's somewhere down the line, who's he talking about? So you kind of just see everyone's talking, and Peter says, hey, John, John. See who's talking about. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. So that's why people believe possibly Simon was at his left, or Judas at his left, because he's close enough for Jesus to dip the morsel in the, whether it was dipping in wine or in gravy, um, um, and then feed it to Judas. He had to be very close. That, in the culture, was a symbol of honor. I'm going to honor you by dipping this bread and feeding you myself. So Jesus does something that honors Judas. Even though Jesus knows exactly what Judas is going to do. Only a friend can betray a friend. A stranger has nothing to gain. He tells them. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. 
Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what you need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. Now, let, let's, let's do a little comparison here. So far, we've learned Jesus is the light of the world, right? And those who walk in darkness don't know Jesus. We just saw in 1 John, if you hate your brother, you're not walking in the light. You're walking in the darkness. So what Jesus, Judas does, it was night. It's more than just a reference to what time of day it is. It's a reference to Judas's heart. Jesus loved him, washed his feet, honored him by giving him a piece of bread. And Jesus, Jesus, Judas departs to betray him. Let's look now at Peter's denial. I'm going to read again verse 31 to 35. We read that at the beginning of the sermon. Read it again. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If, if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once, meaning the cross. Little children, yet a little while I am with you, you will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. He's going to the grave. You know, and then after he's raised, he goes to the Father. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, Simon Peter. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now. But you will follow afterwards. Peter said to him, Lord, why, can't, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Do you think Peter meant it when he said it? Some yeses, some noes. I think he definitely meant it. Truly, I think he meant it. Jesus, that moment, is thinking, this is my Lord. I'll do anything for him. So you can imagine his exuberance as he says, Jesus, I will lay down my life. Whatever happens, I will die with you, Jesus. And then to hear these words. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster has, will not crow until you have denied me three times. So, who knows what Peter felt at that moment? But as we get closer to Easter, we will look at Peter's denial. And the tragedy that that created in him. And imagine what it did to Christ's heart. So, so we'll look at that. We'll have a sermon on that. And the cool thing about John, the last chapter of John, is Jesus restoring Peter back to his ministry. Where Peter denies Jesus three times. Jesus three times says, do you love me, Peter? That's three times to, to reverse his denial. It's a beautiful story. That's how we'll end the Gospel of John. But at this point, imagine Jesus' emotional state. One of those he's loved has left to betray him. Another one who claims to, will die for him, he knows won't and will deny, deny him. A betrayer and a denier. So what do we do with this? What's our application? We practice two ordinances in this church. Communion, twice a month, and baptism. The scriptures tell us you get baptized early in your Christian walk. It's a one-time thing. Lord's Supper is regular. Should we also do foot washing? 
Jesus says, do this. I did it for you. You do it to one another. A few churches out there actually do foot washing churches. In fact, I had to go to a website for someone else asking me to check this church out. And it was um, a free will Baptist church in the, in the southern United States. And they asked me to check it out. And I was reading through their beliefs. And, and, and they do three ordinances. Baptism, communion, and foot washing. So I don't think this is given to us to then make a ceremony out of it. I really don't. Those who do that, I respect that. I don't think that's why we're supposed to do it. I think Jesus has a point behind it. He's talking about how we see each other and how we treat each other. You hear that? He's talking about how we see each other. How do you see the people in your life? Especially those who society would say are lesser than us. As Jesus was the greater and the disciples were the lesser, he was the teacher and Lord, they were the the servants and the students, he lowered himself to serve them. So how do we see each other and how do we treat each other? How I treat you, in part, will determine how I see you. Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, Consider others as more important than yourself. And don't merely look out for your own interest, but look out for the interest of others. That's a hard statement. And I believe it's possible Paul took that principle from Jesus' own life right here. So let's... um, I'm hesitant to do this, but I'm going to do it. When I was accepted to be hired here back in September of 17, I had a friend who was a pastor in Reno, and he knew this church. He knew Danny Bell, the Southern Baptist pastor. He knew Danny Bell, one of the first pastors here. And I said, hey, Mark, I'm so excited. I'm becoming the pastor of Cornerstone Community Church up in Incline Village. He says, oh, you're going to Income Village. And I'd never heard that. I've been in the Reno area for most of my adult life. And I'd never heard that expression. And um, then I get here, so please bear with me. When I get here, someone in this church made a comment about the relationship of this community to Kings Beach. And said, at the state line, there's this thing called the Pine Cone Curtain. What? That people on this side of the Pine Cone Curtain look down on people on that side of the Pine Cone Curtain. I hear the groaning. Again, what, what I see is people I love in this church and that are good people. But what I'm asking you and me to think about is how do we see other people in this church, in this community? And do we see them as lesser than us? And by the way, sociologically, there are people greater than me, there are people lesser than me, as the society puts it out there. But how do I see them by the way I treat them? If love means a servant's heart, if love is proven by action, do I and do you bend the knee to those society says are lesser than me and we meet their needs. 
at the expense of our time, at the expense of our money, at the expense of reputation. And you know what's funny, not funny, what's peculiar about preparing a message like this, I think, how do the people of my church do this? And you know what God says to me? How are you doing, Tony? When was the last time you bent down to serve someone lesser than you? When was the last time you gave up your day to serve someone in great need that you'll get nothing from? So I, 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 this isn't about shame. This is about asking us. We need to ask ourselves, how do we see each other? Because how we see each other will determine how we treat each other. Do we see each other as children of the living God, the objects of Jesus' love, that if he would humble himself and become a servant and wash their feet, which is symbolic of dying for them, then what am I called to do? So I'll leave us with that.